Well, please turn with me in your Bibles again to the first chapter of Ephesians. The text on which the sermon is based is Ephesians chapter 1, verses 11 through 14. I regret to inform you that I have not well prepared the slides for this morning, so you will want to keep the Bible open in front of you. I don't regret to tell you that part. That's a good thing to tell you. Uh, but as far as, the, as far as the kind of track along on the screen, uh, we are, we're not going to have that this morning, so you'll have to track along with the paper in your lap, or uh, I suppose if you, have a, if you have a Bible app, you could use one of those too. And so we begin at verse 11. In Him we have obtained an inheritance, that is in Christ, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. This is the word of the Lord. And again we say, thanks be to God. I told you a couple of weeks ago that this passage we are in right now at the start of Ephesians, starting at verse 3, going to verse 14, constitutes the second longest sentence in the New Testament. A slightly longer one is in the early part of Colossians. The idea being that Paul is writing with, as it were, breathless excitement and wonder at the great work of God while he sits in prison, by the way. And so we come to the end of this very long sentence this morning. And I would remind you as Paul speaks again of God's choice and predestination rooted in His love, it is we, not Paul, but we, who get uncomfortable with predestination or think that that's just something for theological eggheads. Paul seems to make it really key and really important to rejoicing in the good news of the gospel. But I also want to offer you this, that we tend to think of God's main target in the New Testament as, as us, we His people, simply believing in Him. Just believe some facts about God. And that is necessary. As was in our call to worship this morning, believe in your heart in the Lord Jesus Christ. But that is like saying, if you stop there, just, just believe a set of facts That's like saying that to be married, you have to make some vows, which is not wrong. But only a fool would think that just some words and a piece of paper is all that makes up a marriage. God actually desires that His people not only confess who He is, but have and feel a strong security in His love and in His power. I know that because He... uh, makes these overtures in Ephesians chapter 1, Paul does, by the Holy Spirit, that are meant to reassure your heart and my heart as we read about what God has done. Not simply believing the facts, but being joyful, rejoicing in the truth they proclaim. So, my main question this morning for you, for us, what has God given then to steady our hearts when we are confronted with difficult circumstances? Or difficult commands even, which happens quite a lot. In our text this morning, the creator of all the planets and every dust mite answers our fears about being abandoned, about being left alone by God with these three realities. One, that we have an inheritance, 
Two, that we have a hope. And three, that we have a guarantee. Okay? So that's going to make up the three things we're going to talk about this morning. That in Christ, we have an inheritance, we have a hope, and we have a guarantee. So we have an inheritance beginning in verse uh, 11. In Him we have obtained an inheritance. Having stated back in verse 10 that God is uniting all things together, the Father is uniting all things together under the Lordship of Jesus, Paul proceeds to proclaim the news that we have obtained an inheritance. And this is actually something of a difficult phrase to translate because it is the verbal form of the word inheritance, which does not exist in English, right? In Greek, it's literally, we have inheritanced. <laughs> but that doesn't work in English, so it's we have obtained an inheritance. So what, what is an inheritance? Well, an inheritance is what we call a, a material gift. Uh, usually when it's used in, in, in our uh, worldly circumstances, we're speaking of um, a material gift of money or property that gets left behind to someone when the owner of it dies. So when a parent dies and leaves behind a house or Uh, some land or some money, and when in their will they designate who gets it, probably divided among their children, right? That's the inheritance. And what is, that's what, by the way, is so scandalous about uh, when, when Jesus talks about the prodigal son, that this son comes to his father and says, Dad, give me my portion of the inheritance now, which is a not so artful way of saying, Dad, I wish you were dead so that I can have your money. Can I just get that now? And pretend that you're dead. And so to think that by the death of Jesus Christ, we have been given an inheritance that is imperishable and can never pass away. And that should bring us back to uh, verse 5 in Ephesians, to the er- an earlier sermon. He predestined us for adoption to Himself as Son. Sons get the larger portion of the inheritance. God has adopted us into His family, and He means to give us an inheritance that will last forever. But we are not waiting around for God to die. No. But the Son of God and God the Son did take on flesh and die, and in Him we have received the inheritance of sons. So what is Paul getting at? Why why should... Why should the promise of an inheritance steady your spirit when life is hard or when Aunt Sally's in the hospital or whatever else might confront us? When when you are confronted by difficulties you did not expect and plan on? Well, because God in His wisdom knows that in our flesh we try to negotiate uh, with our behavior to get blessing. In our flesh... Whenever, whenever God says, I promise, we want to say, I will earn. This is not the same as the impulse for obedience to what God says, which is wrought by the Holy Spirit and good. I'm talking about our impulse to want to make ourselves worthy so that God owes us something. We want to be owed. We want to be owed. It's amazing how much this impulse undergirds a lot of our action, actually. In Luke 14, 12, Jesus says that when we hold a feast or a dinner, we tend to invite only those who have within themselves the ability to pay us back. And so in this system, when I serve you, I'm really making an investment for myself. 
right? Because the arrangement is now that you have been served by me, you owe me, right? So rather than extending hospitality in order to bless you, I have extended hospitality in order to burden you and later force you to bless me. And one of my ongoing prayers for this body is that more and more we would find ourselves in each other's homes and be a people who are glad to be in one another's homes without the manipulative constructs of either, okay, now you owe me, or okay, now I owe you, right? Now that you've had me over, I have to make good on this and make sure that we have you, know, uh, we, we have you over and, and, and so on and so forth in this never-ending back and forth where we have to pay one another back. Why, why would that be good for us to remove from our fellowship that way of thinking? Well, because that is not how God has treated us. God has inheritanced us. And is it so that we will pay Him back? No, good luck with that. We cannot settle the account with God. We only come as poor beggars and receive. So, so what does God get out of the deal? <laughs> What is the motivation of our Father in promising us eternal, everlasting inheritance? Well, if you look back at verse 11, (laughs) simply because He wanted to. That's it. That's all you're given. In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. He loves you because He loves you. He wants to because He wants to. But not only do we have an inheritance from our Father, He's also given us a hope. Look at verse 12. So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. Now most commentators believe that here Paul is speaking of himself and his fellow Jews when he says, we who were the first to hope in Christ. Okay? And that's because verse 13, the next one, begins with, and you also. Uh, I think that's possible that Paul might be making this Jew-Gentile distinction here. I think it's more likely that he is simply speaking in terms of the first ones to come into the kingdom in the New Testament and to know the gospel, which, which, which was overwhelmingly Jews. But notice he says, we who were the first to hope. It's actually, uh, uh, first to hope is one word in Greek. It's kind of cool. It's... Um, uh, uh, first hopers. We, we who were the, were the early adopters. We who were the first hopers. Ho- hope is a really important idea for the Christian faith. It's important we understand what it means because often this word hope in English is used to describe an uncertainty that we long for. Okay? An uncertainty that we long for, right? So, uh, are you, are you going to get that new job? Well, I hope so. Right? Is the weather going to be cooler today? <laughs> Boy, do I hope so. <laughs> and it isn't. This is exploding my hopes. Uh, we use it to speak of an earnest longing, right? That is accompanied by uncertainty. So if someone was to say about the new job or about the weather, right? Are, are you sure? Are you certain? Well, no, I'm not certain. That's why I said I hope. That's not how the New Testament uses the word, though. In the New Testament, it's pretty much the reverse. In the New Testament, hope is a certainty about the future that affects life in the present. A certainty about the future that affects life, inevitably affects life, or unavoidably affects life in the present. 
Timothy Keller helpfully uses this example. He says, if you put two people in two rooms with the exact same conditions, okay, same size rooms, same lighting, same temperature, same uh, ambient background music, and give them exactly the same job, right? Put screw A into board B and tell them to do it over and over again for 10 hours straight every day for a month. And the only thing is different is that the guy in the first room, you say, at the end of the month, I'm going to give you $1,000. Well, $1,000, okay, for 300 hours of monotonous work? It's not really a great deal. And to the other guy, you say, at the end of the month, I'm going to give you a million dollars. Now, that's a deal. Same job, right? Well, no, not anymore. Because how you do your job depends on what you believe the future brings. How you live your life depends on what you believe is coming down the road in the future, which is why eschatology probably matters a lot more than we think, but that's another sermon for another time. But how you work and act and live depends on what you believe the future holds. Imagine a high school football team at their championship game at the end of the year. Yes, it's a sports metaphor. And they are down by 50 points <laughs> at the end of the first half. Right? Impossible to come back from, right? Wrong. I step out of a time machine during the halftime break. I go into the locker room and I say, gentlemen, I've brought back from the future game footage video of the second half. And they watch the second half, and it's an absolute rally. They charge that field. In the second half, they beat the pants off the other team, not only make up that 50 points, but pull ahead with a bunch more and win the game in the last 10 seconds. What is their attitude walking out of the locker room at the start of the second half? A hopeful, joyful, and absolutely unstoppable. That is biblical hope. It is part of our inheritance. And if you have the hope of the victory of Christ over all things, verse 10, that He is uniting all things under Christ and His Lordship. Things in heaven, already there. Things on earth, catching up. And that gospel will cover the earth, earth as the waters cover the seas and it's going to get brought into every nation. Then you might share identical circumstances with the guy in the box next to yours. But you will process those circumstances and work in radically different ways. And so we are called to hope. And if that wasn't enough, my third point is that we have a guarantee. We've been given an inheritance. We've been told to hope. That's the certainty of the future, beloved. And now we've been given a guarantee. Verses 13 and 14. In Him also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, from back up in verse 11, until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of His glory. So notice, there was a, there was a, we, we have been inheritance, we've been given an inheritance, and also until we acquire possession of it. Well, do we have it or do we not have it yet? Yes. Okay, more on that in a moment. 
Paul says we have an inheritance, we have a hope, and he tells us if we were still given to any doubts, then we have a guarantee. He says we are sealed with the Spirit. What does that mean? You know, if you remember, I told you at the start of this that Paul moves through this really, it's, it's, the, it's, a, it's a good long Trinitarian sentence. Verses 3 through 14. Starts with the blessing of the Father, then the redemption of the Son, now the sealing of the Holy Spirit. So what, is, what does sealing mean? What's, what's a seal? Not to be confused with the animal, right? If we can get that one out of our heads now that I've put it in there. The word is used at least three different ways in the New Testament, which we're going to go over very quickly. First, the word can be used of sealing something shut. So you think about sealed doors or something like that. Uh, we see this in Matthew 27:66, where Jesus' body was secured in a tomb, and it says they sealed it. Uh, let's see. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. Okay? We also see it in Revelation chapter 20, verses 2 and 3, where God throws Satan into a pit and seals it so that he cannot escape. Right? Same, same word is used here, and that's uh, both in both places in Matthew uh, 27 and in Revelation 20. What it means is to seal up or to protect or to block off. The word is also used to speak of the Spirit sealing us as a sign of authenticity. In Romans chapter 4, verse 11, we read that Abraham's circumcision is called the sign and seal of righteousness that he had by faith. That is, it is a visible authentication of his faith. And in 1 Corinthians 9, Paul says that the Corinthian Christians are the seal of his apostleship. That is, they authenticated. He says, if to others I'm not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. So you have sealing shut, and then you have a sign of authenticity. Third, we see in Revelation 7.3, where the seal of God is placed upon His servants. Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. Okay, so what is Paul talking about in our text in Ephesians when he talks about the sealing of the Spirit? Which of the three? I would actually say pick one or take all three. They all work. The Holy Spirit certainly does seal our hearts and, as it were, shut in uh, faith. Shut in the sense that he, he seals faith in us and keeps unbelief out. The Spirit also works in our life to reveal God's, as it were, fingerprints on us, His work in our lives. We often struggle to see the work of God in our own lives. But the longer you've been a Christian, the longer you should be able to look back over the course of life and see the work of God, as Paul would say, to the praise of His glorious grace. We often struggle to see that work of God, but over time it can and does become more evident. And God certainly does mark us out from the world. Okay? That is why we call baptism and the Lord's Supper uh, seals of the covenant of grace. They mark us out from the world and distinguish us. However we come at the Word, though, it, it preaches to us the security of God's love and God's power. The fact that you are sealed by the Holy Spirit. If you go back to verse 13, uh, 13 and 14, we are sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance. Right? The guarantee is what, this, is what the Holy Spirit is called. And uh, you, you, some of you might know in Greek, this word is actually the word for down payment or first installment. 
So Marissa and I, uh, this summer, uh, attempted to grow some vegetables in our backyard with, with, Steve's more, with Steve Moore's help, and uh, I'm, I'm pleased to report we were met with some moderate success. I, I, meant to, uh, I meant to bring a picture for you to put up, so some, somebody remind me, next Sunday I'll, I'll brag uh, about the glory of our, of our summer garden. I think my favorite was our little bush of cherry tomatoes, which at first I was not planning to be thrilled about because I have never been a fan of tomatoes. And when I told Marissa that, she said, oh, well, that must mean that you've never had fresh-grown tomatoes then. (laughs) I thought, no. (laughs) I know what I don't like, right? Tomatoes are just mediocre, and that's how I feel about them. I don't dislike them. They're fine. They just don't excite me. We don't need to get, you know, I mean, oh, you just must not have had good ones then. I thought, no, no. I'm happy to publicly confess that I was wrong. That I was very wrong, because one day I remember going out to the tomato bush, seeing the first one, that first little couple of cherry tomatoes. Most were still green, but a few had this delightful deep red. And I plucked one, and I ate it, and I knew instantly that I was wrong. I thought, wow, this tomato tastes like crow. (laughs) And that's funny, you should laugh at that. (laughs) But suddenly I was really excited, right? Because... I mean, even though I, I knew I'd have to go back in the house and tell Marissa you were right and I was wrong, which is good for husbands and wives to practice saying very frequently to each other, I knew that that little tomato was only the first fruits of what was going to come over the next few days and weeks. And it was good. So what is God telling us when He gives us the gift of the Holy Spirit, fills us with the Holy Spirit, the gift given to every believer, and says this is the guarantee, this is the down payment, this is the first installment? Well, what what He's doing is He is sealing and certifying and guaranteeing every single promise of the last 13 verses. That you have every spiritual blessing in Christ. That you're chosen and predestined and adopted. That you're holy and blameless before Him. That you have redemption and forgiveness through His blood. That you're part of His plan to unite all things under the Lordship of Jesus. And that, one, and that all of this is not given because of anything in you, but simply because He loves you and He loves you because He loves you and He chose you because He chose you because He wanted to. According to the purpose of Him who works all things together for the counsel of His will. According to the counsel of His will. Who works all things together. That word work carries not just a sense of action, but implementation. He is working this in you and for you because He wants to. He has redeemed you by the blood of His Son. He has put His Holy Spirit in you as a seal and a guarantee. Therefore, you will receive the inheritance of adopted sons. And this is only the first fruits, right? I guarantee the rest is coming, saith the Lord. That's the idea. And to whom is this given? At what point in the Christian life does this happen? Look at verse 13 again. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed. It is really important that you do not hear this sermon about all the blessings of being filled and sealed with the Holy Spirit, and you think, oh, that must be for other Christians. And maybe someday I'll get there. This is given to every believer when they hear the word of truth and when they believe. 
That is when they get sealed. That is when they are God's. That is when they are given this glorious guarantee. Your faith, (laughs) your faith is the evidence of the Spirit's work in you. That we who were the first to believe, so to speak. And so, the, the word of hope I want to give you this morning is that God finishes what He starts. And so if He's begun a good work in you, He is the one who's going to carry it on in His strength to the glory of His name. Not by your strength to the glory of your name. That the Spirit is a down payment means that God still means to pay the whole thing off, so to speak. In other words, God has given us a guarantee that what He has, what he has started, He will finish. Now this is an amazing hope Christian, if you have any need for sanctification in your life, and don't you? (laughs) I mean, nothing nothing has sort of brought it into focus for me like a little baby girl. I I mean, I laid eyes on her and I was like, oh Lord, you have so much work to do. You have so much work to do. This is true of every individual believer that God who has started something in you will bring it to completion. He means to bring it to total completion on the last day. He has given us many great and precious promises. And then He seasons the rest of our earthly lives with foretastes and flavors and pinches here and there of all the delight and glory that eternity holds. And apart from these refreshments, look, I I think it is true that apart from these refreshments of grace, our souls would begin to wither and grow dull and bitter and we would lose, as it were, our sense of taste. Do you know that's that's why we gather for worship? So that we don't forget what the new heavens and the new earth taste like. It's that important. Do you know why we love our neighbors, for goodness sake? So that they don't forget what eternity and new heavens and new earth will taste like. We celebrate the Lord's Supper every single Sunday so that we don't forget what the feast is going to taste like. It's why we have picnics. (laughs) It's why we eat together. It's why we gather at the Hasek's home for a feast and some songs and a folk dance so that we don't forget what fellowship tastes like. Jesus Christ on the cross suffered the experience of divine abandonment by His Father. My God, my God, why have You forsaken Me? And in exchange, we have the certainty that we will never be abandoned by our Father. The Son has already drank the full cup, I mean, not only of wrath, but but of divine abandonment. So that you can hear, so that you can hear, behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And he has given us the Holy Spirit as a guarantee. And he will make full payment on all that he promises. He's given a handful of nations a first taste of his glory. He means to spread that glory over every tribe and tongue. And we've already seen the game footage. We win. It's really exciting news. We win because our Savior went to the cross bearing all the wrath of God, all our sin and misery, remaining under the power of the grave for three days, and then rising up absolutely unconquered, leading captives out of their prisons and into the sunlight. 
And so this is the pattern of our Savior, and He has given us to follow after Him. We go, this is not original to me, but it's so good I wanted to share it with you. We go from victory to victory to victory, all of them cleverly disguised as defeats. So be not discouraged, dear saints. This is not the time for retreating. This is the time for planting, for singing, for knowing and being known by each other. As G.K. Chesterton once said, Christianity has died many times and it has always risen again. For it has a God who knows the way out of the grave. In the name of Jesus, amen. And so our Father, we ask that you would give us a true and lively and strong faith that is not strengthened by our own strength, but is strengthened and held up, lifted up by the promises of our God who has given us the Holy Spirit as a guarantee, as a down payment that He means to make good on, that He means to complete every good work that He has started. What a glory this is for frail people such as us. So ready our hands, Lord, for the work and remind us that now we come to Your table not in our own strength, not bringing many accomplishments, but out of need to be fed by Jesus. In His name, amen.